Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. And with me as she is each week is Co M. Co, how's it going? Yay, yes. This is Co, your department's editor at Adweek. And we have a lot to talk about today. Indeed. And uh, we're going to go deep on uh, streaming and tell us uh, our special guest that we have this week to talk all things streaming. We are joined by our streaming editor, Kelsey Sutton, who is calling in from Queens. Kelsey, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me, Co and Griner. I'm I'm so excited to join you guys. Yeah, and, and you've been busy because media consumption has been growing a lot. Um, let's start off with some of the news um, this month about the... Disney Plus subscriptions, a big surprise, um, maybe even a bigger surprise than some might have predicted. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Disney uh, recently announced that it had sort of surpassed 50 million subscribers globally, which is just a really sort of astonishing figure for Disney Plus. Uh, They debuted in November of 2019. So they've been uh, on the market for less than five months, and uh, they are uh, about a little under one third of what Netflix has in terms of global subscribers, which is, uh, as of their last quarterly earnings, 161 million. Uh, So 50 million is nothing to turn your nose up at. Um, and, and they're calling these people paid, paid subscribers. Um, so these are people who are paying, although some of them might be coming in through, uh, some bundles or some, uh, promotional efforts. Uh, and it's certainly bolstered by the fact that they recently kind of debuted, uh, their services in, in nearly a dozen international markets, uh, a lot of Western European markets, and then, uh, in India where Disney plus is, uh, being offered in kind of tandem with uh, Hotstar, which is a streaming service that uh, plays uh, a lot of sports, uh, including cricket. That's very popular in in India. So, um, but, but it's a huge figure and it kind of indicates just sort of the stakes that these upcoming streamers are going to face when they kind of, they, they uh, have their own services. So we're expecting Peacock, which is from NBC Universal. We're expecting HBO Max, which will be from Warner Media. Uh, Quibi just launched this week. Um, and so the fact that Disney was able to kind of get as as big as it was able to get in such a short period of time just shows there's an appetite for streaming, obviously. But uh, you know, as more people sign up for 
more services, it's going to become harder and harder to convince somebody to sign up for yet another one and pay for yet another one. So um, it's really it's really kind of an interesting figure and really just kind of underscores the uh, the opportunities there. So just to be clear, this growth, this you know tremendous growth that they've had, which seems way ahead of what they were at least conservatively predicting is that it really is just because of this global and popular growth, not so much because the world went into quarantine and suddenly had a lot more time and interest in streaming? Well, I why not both? <laughs> I think that um, I think that one of the things that's been really interesting the past, gosh, four weeks um, in the U.S., but obviously, you know, elsewhere for longer as as we have seen these sort of shutdowns all over the globe is is streaming consumption has gone up tremendously. I mean, linear television viewership is up too. Basically, everybody's home and everybody's watching things um, because why not? They're not at work. <laughs> Maybe they're working, but they can have a show on in the background. And so that use, that the consumer usage of these sort of services has just absolutely skyrocketed. Um, and it's, it's an interesting moment because you don't really want want to be seen I think as a company as sort of capitalizing on on what is ultimately um, <laughs> not I think uh, not it's 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 a bad moment in history I think we can all kind of agree on that but they are sort of looking for ways to um, offer up their services uh, for for free uh, to to sort of let consumers try out the services, see what sort of programming they like, because again, what better time to do it than when you, uh, you know, don't have any plans uh, because you're stuck at home. Um, so that's not something that's that's specific to Disney Plus. That's something that that we're seeing sort of across the board. Uh, HBO Max or HBO, so they're preparing HBO Max, but before that, they uh, HBO just released a ton of programming for free, entirely for free, to say, even if you don't have an HBO subscription, here you go, watch The Sopranos, watch The Wire, um, which is really sort of an interesting move. And we're seeing a lot of that uh, these past couple of weeks, um, extended trials, uh, things like that. And I I do wonder, I mean, what are what have you guys been using? What are, have you been been uh, kind of consuming while you've while you've been home? I'm I'm you know, I feel like my consumption of, of TV has just gone through the roof. So interestingly enough, um, I know that Tiger King on Netflix uh, was really popular. You know, 34.3 million, you wrote, um, that watched it in the first 10 days. I was not um, part of that crowd. I think I'm a little bit of an anomaly. Um, I haven't been binge watching during quarantine. I binge watch normally. <laughs> <laughs> so like something like Shit's Creek, you know, like a feel good comedy family show um, is something that I finished like way before quarantine. So I'm actually catching up on a lot of um, old movies. I watched Waiting to Exhale. Um, and then I'm looking forward to, you know, the programming in May um, that CBS is going to do every Sunday um, with movies like Titanic. Um, I think there's a, a part of me as a consumer that is craving kind of nostalgia um, and not overloading myself with new shows. What about you, Greiner? Uh, you, you know what I've been binging? Zoom calls. <laughs> <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> um no but to that point i was curious um 
I, I mean, I can't say that my the only thing that's really changed for us is that uh, my kids are home all day, and so they're being really good about structuring their day to kind of do e learning because school is canceled all year uh, here, um, and which I think is increasingly becoming common. Uh, but like, they're probably watching more. Um, but my like, it's interesting. You know, my daughter's really been digging into the office, which not to get on a tangent. But I've only recently learned about how much how much kids love The Office, which is fascinating to me because it, you couldn't have paid me when I was a kid to watch a show about adults working in a boring paper office. And every kid I know <laughs> who's in this like 10 to age 12 range, they love it. And I think they love it just because it's so awkward and they can appreciate and identify with the social awkwardness of these like weirdos who don't know how to interact with each other. Um, so it's just been kind of fun watching her binge through it. We've been going back and rewatching or for the first time for my kids watching Doctor Who, uh, which they've never seen, uh, obviously starting with the newer ones. We didn't go like way back to the sixties, but, um, but other than that, like the thing I'm curious about the trend is this idea of, uh, of parties to watch Netflix together. And Kelsey, you, you mentioned you've been doing this too. What, what is that experience like, like, uh, digitally watching a Netflix movie together? And, and and for those who haven't done it, how is it done? Yeah, so uh, I was telling uh, Griner and Co. before we got uh, we went on air that uh, that I've been watching uh, movies every Saturday with some friends of mine through Netflix Party, which allows you to uh, stream a Netflix show or movie uh, in tandem. Uh, and there's a little sidebar on the right hand side. You can send each other messages, make jokes. That's really how my friends and I have been using it. You know, we log in and uh, just start, you know, riffing on things that are going on on the screen. And uh, but I think that it's it's an experience that uh, is kind of it's kind of strange because we, uh, my boyfriend and I, we will stream it to our we will plug it into our TV. And so we have this bit on because we want the movie experience, but it's really sort of designed as like a laptop experience, right? You have a keyboard and you will be like sending messages. So we have the laptop in front of us so that we can send messages, but we're watching it up on the screen at the same time, which is kind of funny, but it, it, it works out in the, in uh, the way that it, it helps, I guess, replicate sort of a social um, movie watching experience, uh, which we obviously cannot do right now. Um, but I kind of think it's it's interesting because that sort of co-viewing is such a key part, I think, for a lot of a lot of people who want to watch shows. That's part of the magic. Um, and that's actually why I think so many streamers are focused on shows that are designed for co-viewing. A lot of that is family programming right? Shows that you can watch with your kids. Um, and that's why a lot of uh, streaming services have really gone after that demographic, right? Because they know that that's something that that people are, are craving and something that people are wanting. Um, and it's also one of the reasons I think that uh, a lot of film distributors have chosen, because all the movie theaters are closed down, they're opting to use transactional video on demand services. So Vudu or Amazon Prime to actually out movies uh, so that people can watch them at their house. Uh, and those are primarily, you know, you're, you can't replicate a theater, a theatrical experience in your living room, but you can certainly uh, kind of appreciate the uh, co-viewing nature of, of a program like that, uh, just sort of in these, the, the limited, uh, the limitations that we're, we're all facing right now uh, since, since things are, are shut down. 
Right. But you bring up this point of, um, you know, it used to be consumers, you know, like I'm going to have the content when I want it, but they also can feel empowered at this moment to do appointment viewing with, you know, the integration that Netflix is having with its party mode. Um, it, it almost um, reminds me of, you know, this is where Facebook watch is a missed opportunity. Um, but I want to, I want to kind of turn over to, to Quibi because you were saying how, you know, with Netflix, you're, you want to have the movie experience, but also, you know, the, the interaction was designed for, um, you know, laptop UX. So, you know, with Quibi, um, well, if you could give us a little bit of an overview and then kind of get into, you know, what happens with like a mobile only experience, um, especially when it was concepted as something for the, the in-between moments or the moments like on the go. And we're clearly like not on the go anymore, except from the living room to the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Which I do approximately 40 times a day. Um, I, so I am still on the go, just uh, just limited. Um, I, so so yeah, Quibi, Quibi is a really interesting uh, sort of service. And they uh, debuted on April 6th. I talked to uh, Quibi CEO Meg Whitman uh, sort of about the experience and something that she uh, said is they they really have had to sort of reimagine what their service is, is when, when people are going to use the service because Quibi programming is really designed. It's all 10 minutes or less uh, episodes. A lot of the most of the sh- uh, episodes are released daily. Um, they have programming through Thanksgiving, which is great. They have a huge backlog of, of stuff, so they're not going to have trouble, I guess, uh, releasing programming, which is something that we're seeing because production is, is halted. So that's, that's kind of causing some ripple effects through the rest of the sort of entertainment, uh, industry. But, but Quibi was really designed for people to watch on the subway, or while they were waiting in line, or while they were at a dentist's office waiting in the waiting room. And that part of our lives has shifted so fast. I mean, I'm thinking four weeks ago, I was, I guess was the first time that it was that I stopped commuting in. I haven't been on a train since. Uh, You know, my world, my rate, the radius uh, for a lot of people has just, uh, contracted so much. And so what Meg Whitwin was telling me when I talked to her was that she was really thinking that the use case of Quibi was going to change. They sort of initially thought that people were going to watch this between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., sort of during the commute, uh, in between, you know, waiting in the break room, on a lunch break, you know, walking from point A to point B or, or, you know, going on a train from from point A to point B. And and now she said they're going to be looking to see are people tuning into Quibi's right before they go to bed? Are they going to be watching Quibi's in between Zoom calls? Uh, as you said, Griner, we're, we've all been <laughs> watching a lot of those. Um, what? How does that how does that change as the world has changed so much? And I think that's something they're going to have to be, they're going to be keeping a really close eye on in these next couple of weeks. But it's really interesting because so much of those learnings are, it's interesting because some of it is is a permanent learning, right? You understand how people use and consume content, but also you can't take it necessarily as a permanent 
learning, right? Because I don't know when things go, will go back to what I I hesitate to say normal, but when when people start commuting again, when people start going back into an office or waiting in a dentist's office waiting room or uh, standing in line at Starbucks, are they going to use Quibi there? And so that's going to be, it's just, it's an interesting time to be launching a new service because you can't, um, just the expectations of, of how someone's going to use it have been t- turned totally upside down. Um, you know, with that said, they, um, you know, went, have gone full force uh, with a huge marketing campaign, um, a ton of, of digital ads, connected TV ads. And so they're hoping that that there will be some stickiness to, to what they're offering, uh, kind of regardless of, of where people are, are going to be watching it or when they're going to be watching it. Um, but before we let you go, Kelsey, I did want to talk about kind of the more traditional side of TV. Uh, and specifically the upfronts. Uh, so the upfronts is something this time each year, we usually kind of deep dive about how the different networks are kind of selling their programming and why advertisers should really heavy up with them specifically. This year, it, I, I, you know, obviously not because of viewership habits so much as just the reality of coronavirus. Uh, the whole thing has basically collapsed now, short, basically the day that we record this on Friday, uh, it, it sounds like kind of the whole upfronts week has fallen apart. Yeah, yeah, you're you're totally right, and it's pretty uh, pretty astonishing. It's not entirely unsurprising. Uh, one of the things that's so uh, challenging about these presentations uh, is you can't one you can't have them in person right now, but two, um, there's a lot of uncertainty about when uh, advertisers are going to be ready to transact. And then there's the added question of what will broadcasters be able to sell, <laughs> which is the whole production question, right? If you can't finish producing a show because you can't have large groups of people filming uh, or doing anything for that matter, uh, that causes these sort of chain reactions. So uh, Jason Lynch, my editor and and the TV editor, uh, talked to most of the broadcasters who said that uh, it's really kind of waiting to see when their partners, their clients are going to be ready to have these conversations and talk about what what they need and and what going forward in this new landscape is going to look like. Um, What that means is most of those presentations are not going to be happening the week of May 11th, which is sort of the upfronts week uh, that that we were expecting, uh, and it's unlikely that it's it's very unlikely that there will be sort of a settled upon week, one week that everybody can can sort of expect as a new upfronts week. So that's what happened with uh, the new friends, uh, which is sort of digital media's. Uh, upfront's answer. And so they postponed theirs just by two months. They said, we're going to put this on hold. We're going to have this in two months time and we'll do all the programming then. All the presentations will happen in a week then. But uh, with the upfronts, it's a little bit of a, a different story. So that causes, and again, it's it's not an entirely surprising uh, development, but it's, it's one that will uh, make upfront's season much longer, uh, right? You can't have one week where you go, okay, this is, I know this is what's going to be available. This is what's, uh, this is what's happening. Here are all the broadcasters. I know everything that's going on in one week's time. It's going to be 
it seems like spread out over the course of, of many, many weeks uh, because everyone's going to kind of do it on their own schedule. Yeah, everything's shifting. Um, thank you, Kelsey, for keeping an eye and for all your insights and expertise for our listeners. Um, there's also an infographic in this week's um, issue about uh, specifically breaking down um, streaming and media consumption across generations. Kelsey, thanks so much for being with us today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Kelsey and co., uh, I have a riddle for you to solve before you leave, Kelsey. Oh, good. That's that's why I came on this podcast. <laughs> um, what do Ashton Kutcher, Tyra Banks, and Jennifer Lopez have in common? Is this has to do I like with Quibi? I, I like that I, pa- I pause as if you're possibly going to be guess my completely made up riddle here. Uh, the answer... <laughs> is Karen Spencer. Uh, Karen Spencer is currently the SVP of partnerships at an influencer marketing firm called Whaler. Uh, But Karen led the 1 million um, follower charge for Ashton Kutcher, got him up to to be the first person on Twitter with a million followers, and then went on to work for Tyra Banks and went on to work with Jennifer Lopez and many other uh, celebrities, uh, kind of connecting them with uh, new influencers and creating influencer marketing campaigns. She worked at Target. She worked at uh, uh, AT&T and and Twitter and several other places. We sat down with her uh, to talk about influencer marketing, how it's changed under quarantine, and uh, and then also kind of why she believes, I mean, uh, you know, she works at an influencer marketing agency, but uh, why she believes that it is a really good place to be putting your money right now and why it really makes sense as other kind of advertising spend options have become more problematic and difficult. Uh, so that is the next segment of our podcast. Uh, we sat down with, uh, with Karen. And uh, so we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, uh, you will get to hear my conversation with, uh, with Karen. So we'll be right back with that. The Adweek team may be working remotely, but we're still working together to bring you the latest news, advice, and insights from the advertising and marketing world. Our new show, Adweek Together, explores how the industry is forging ahead and innovating in today's complex landscape. Watch live at noon Eastern every day on adweek.com, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. I am here with uh, Karen Spencer, SVP of Partnerships at Whaler, um, which is an influencer marketing firm. Actually, I just realized, Karen, this is the first time I've said it out loud. Is that how is that how it's pronounced, Whaler? Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> it's W H A L A R. Yes, um, because whales communicate with each other over long distances underwater. Oh, is that is that really where the name came from? Yes. That's fun. Um, So, Karen, uh, I've known you for a few years now, and in that time you've had some very fascinating roles. But before I met you, uh, you also had incredibly fascinating uh, jobs. And uh, I would love to, if you could just kind of recap your uh, really, uh, I'm going to keep saying fascinating uh, and run out of words here, but your uh, really interesting career. Uh, Give us a a quick recap of that. Uh, Thank you. Quick recap. I came to LA and worked my way up in the talent agency world and became a talent agent and then went to work for Ashton Kutcher first as his assistant, sort of took took a demotion to go work for him because it did sound fascinating. Um, I worked as his assistant and then we built a production company together for television, film, and uh, we called it new media back then. It was all around making content for the web um, and became 
became his vice president of production, worked with him for five years, and then went to uh, work in hip hop for a while and helped Chris Lighty manage 50 Cent and Puffy and Mariah Carey, among others. Uh, After that was Tyra Banks, director of communications. And from there, I worked at the first ever influencer agency called The Audience. After that, I went to Twitter and I was the head of creators at Vine. And when Vine closed, I became the vice president of millennial marketing at AT AT&T. From there, I was the head of celebrity and influencer partnerships at Target. And now I am at Whaler. Man. That is, you know, it's like, I think I've, I've literally told so many people every time you come up, I'm just like, I don't even have time to get into her (laughs) her background. And you have, you have very succinctly, it's like, you've had to do this uh, many times to tell this backstory. (laughs) I I, I guess I'm curious to how your, before we kind of get to, and we are definitely going to talk about how quarantine and coronavirus have changed the digital platforms, how they've changed what influencer marketing is and how it works and what it means for brands. Uh, but first, I, I'm just curious how you've seen your own career path lead to, like, all these different parts you played. What do you feel like was the thread that kind of led you deeper and deeper down the, the path of, of what is now influencer marketing? Well, it ties up sort of neatly with a bow now 20 years in, but there were so many um, times throughout that journey that I was super confused and none of it made any sense to me. Um, but thankfully, now looking back, back on it, I really attribute uh, my journey to being fortunate enough to partner with Ashton at the very beginning because he was, of course, a traditional celebrity, someone who came to fame uh, on a television show, but he didn't... um, want to continue on that traditional path. And so he was quite interested in startups and technology and um, digital mediums. And so he launched his quest to become the first person on Twitter to reach a million followers. And I worked on that campaign with him. And that was a, a turning point for me because I had been spending a year in an edit bay working on one of his films. And overnight, uh, the campaign around um, getting to be the first to a million on Twitter Twitter had Oprah calling him and asking him to come on her show and explain digital media to um, to her. And then it just was like this moment of realization that he could send a tweet out and have an immediate feedback loop. Whereas I was editing this film and I still didn't know if people were going to like it after spending a year working on it. And so it, it really changed everything for me. And I just, um, have always, you know, you said fascinating jobs that, that is really what has always attracted me to any opportunity is, does this feel scary? Does this feel, um, really like way above my head? I'm just a girl from a small town in North Carolina. Why am I working in the hip hop industry? I don't know. But um, going after working for Ashton to working for Chris Lighty, who famously put 50 Cent and Vitamin Water together, he was someone in the hip hop industry who saw early on that his clients were not going to be able to make a living on their music alone. And so he uh, was brokering these corporate brand deals with his hip hop artists and led the way for the entire industry in that. Um, And then to go from working for Chris to working for Tyra, who 
way before it was um, trendy, was pushing body positivity and authenticity. And, you know, she loves to uh, invent words and she invented a word called flossum so that when you made a mistake, it wasn't bad. It was actually awesome. And um, I was just so fortunate to work with those three luminaries in their respective industries early on. And they were all really interested in the digital space as well. And um, that just laid a foundation for me to continually be curious and to put talent together with brands for maximum messaging opportunities. And, and obviously the big thing that's changed since your time working with celebrities and Ashton Kutcher being, of course, the, the maybe the best known example of this. But since then, we've it's become really normal that people who got famous elsewhere become influencers in social media, basically just by coming into it. And, and you, you kind of helped create a playbook for that to happen, to come into social and develop millions of fans and, and to make it a big part of your of, of what it means to be a celebrity now. But the other thing that's come about is people coming the other way, people getting famous within social platforms um, and then becoming celebrities. And so kind of <laughs> inverse of the traditional celebrity route, I'm curious what you think are, are what you've seen, honestly, are the unique challenges of that. It, it feels like it would be easier to get famous and then go into social media than to become famous in social media. I, I just can't imagine how disruptive that is to just suddenly explode out of nowhere. Yeah, and I'm I'm so fascinated by this topic. It is really what um, compels me to think about this space every day. And the lines are blurring. Um, and I think even in times of Corona, we'll see sort of the gas pedal just being applied to all of these areas with digital and social all of a sudden becoming more and more prominent in every person's life. But if you look at the back end of a traditional celebrity's social media platforms versus the back end of the platforms of someone who came to fame natively through digital, I think you would still be able to tell a very clear divide between who is who. And this will um, continue to merge into one lane, I think, in the next few years. But right now, someone who is traditionally famous, and I'll use Jennifer Lopez as an example because she's someone who I worked with um, to create a digital campaign around for one of her concerts, Um, you know, Jennifer is someone who, because she was traditionally famous when social media platforms were born and she joined them, like most other traditional celebrities, every platform then used her accounts in the onboarding for their platform. So if you were a new user to Twitter and you downloaded the app, oftentimes Twitter would tell you, hey, look at these celebrities that are on Twitter. You should follow them. And so my theory is that a lot of famous people early on gained their huge followings because of that user experience, because who doesn't want to feel like they're more connected to JLo when they download an app? They say, yes, of course, I'll follow JLo. But then what happened because of the combination of a lot of those users being dormant, once they downloaded the app, they weren't highly engaged users, and also traditional celebrities not really leaning into the best practices of each social platform and being really thoughtful about creating the content that they were, um, as opposed to digital creators who, because they were born on those platforms, they had to learn all of the ins and outs very quickly to rise to fame. I think what happens with a lot of traditional celebrity 
pages is that you'll look and see that they have 40 million followers. But then when you look at the back end, you see that a lot of those followers are either bots or they're dormant and not engaged. And so I think traditional celebrities still need quite a lot of help in the digital space. And Jennifer is someone who, when we worked with her to promote her concert for DirecTV, we explained this to her and her representation and said, listen, if we want this to be the biggest thing in social, when your concert is streaming on Twitter, then we need the help of digital creators. And so I built a strategy utilizing 13 other digital creators who were native to Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. And we identified a bunch of different demographic targets that we wanted to hit. And of course, they were so thrilled to get a chance to work with JLo. Um, David Dobrik is one of the creators that I brought in, and they made a fantastic YouTube video together to promote the concert. And through that experience, I think everyone learned a lot, um, but Jennifer in particular really rebuilt her social strategy coming out of that experience after realizing the value that digital creators can bring to celebrity engagement. And that's just something I counsel any traditional celebrity around is like, look, there are tons of digital creators who would love to collaborate on making content with you, and you would actually see more engagement on your social channels than you've ever seen before. And in fact, we saw so many comments on Jennifer's pages when she published the video that she made uh, with David Dobrik saying, well, now I'm a fan of you, JLo, because I was a fan of David. And so the leveraging of fandom sort of works in the opposite way that you would assume that it would on digital. Well, I'm going to say a word that I know has a lot of emotional resonance for you. And then we'll, we'll do like word association. I'll say something. And you tell me how it makes you feel. <laughs> okay. Vine. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I have, you know, I think my, my tweet that I posted on the day that we heard Vine was closing was my heart will always beat green. And I still believe that to be true. You know, the, the time that I spent working at Vine um, was a really cherished um, time in my life. And I am so fortunate to still be really engaged in the community, um, not only of digital creators who were born on Vine, and now many of them have gone on to fame on YouTube or TikTok or in other areas of their lives, but um, uh, the former employees of Vine. You know, I'm in a group chat on Twitter with a lot of them, and we still talk every day. Um, so I'm really thankful for so many relationships that I've created um, through working at Vine, and I'm fascinated in being a part of making a documentary about the rise and fall of Vine. I have um, tagged Netflix several times on tweets saying, please, I hope that a documentary producer um, wants to contact me and collaborate because I think it's a, a fascinating story that has yet to be told. I, I, you know what I loved about Vine, and I've always been a big believer in creating content on every platform. Um, just to get used to it, just to try it out. But I have to admit, Vine is one where I hit a wall really quickly because the level of creativity and thought and just consistency that it requires to be good at it, it's way more than like, you know, posting occasionally to Instagram or, or you know, posting funny things on Twitter. Vine was hard in this way that I don't know if enough people appreciated. But is is TikTok kind of the, the heir to what, the, to the promise of Vine creatively? Yeah, someone said to me, Vine walked so TikTok could run. And I don't think that that's inaccurate. Um, 
probably the barrier to entry around content creation is somewhat similar, right? Like anyone could have recorded and posted a Vine. Anyone can record and post a TikTok. But in order to truly make something go viral on either one of those platforms, you have to be fluent. You have to understand the heartbeat of the community. And I think we're seeing that already um, in TikTok and the people who are successful on that platform. Um, you're right. Uh, taking a, a picture and posting it on Instagram is quite simple, but to be a true content creator on Vine within the app and on TikTok within the app requires a, a certain amount of skill that a lot of people discount and sort of roll their eyes around. But um, it is, in fact, a skill. And the thing that I, I'm glad I got into TikTok kind of before quarantine just to kind of see how it is like the app made for quarantine, right? Like for both the user and the creator, because it was, you know, these weren't Instagram influencers traveling to Bali and posting gorgeous photos, you know, that the rest of us would be like, good for you. You know, these are, <laughs> these are teenagers in a, in a bedroom or in a hallway or in a kitchen while their parents are putzing around in the background, doing these incredibly complicated synchronized moves or making these really just amazingly timed jokes. Uh, you know, and it, it just feels like it was custom made both for on both sides of that equation for, for going into the quarantine. Absolutely. Um, I love the trend on TikTok to involve parents as well. I think um, what I have really appreciated is wholesome becoming a quality in contents, you know, uh, in comments. People say this is so wholesome. And I really appreciate that wholesome has somehow become something that young people are valuing. Um, but making coordinated dance TikToks with your parents, especially um, that trend has just shot through the, lo the roof in quarantine, but um, involving a whole family in a TikTok is one of my favorite things. And I do have some stats fresh off the presses uh, about what has been happening with TikTok for the third week of March. Are you ready? Because I yeah. think this is really interesting. Um, the average daily video view volume has increased 48.7% the wow. week of March 15th through 21st compared to the first week in 2020. The number of daily videos published on TikTok in the U.S. has increased 58%. And the U.S. average for users has jumped up to 80 minutes per day. And particularly within the demo of ages 13 to 17, it's 98 minutes a day. So we're definitely seeing the quarantine have a big effect on the TikTok numbers. Man, that's amazing. I mean, I guess like if you think about it just logistically, like if you don't have to physically go to school and, you know, you don't have to leave your, you could, if you're a content creator who's kind of been having to fit TikTok into the hours of your life where you're, you know, you're not doing chores and you're not doing whatever. And I don't mean to sound like I'm saying it's all just teenagers living at home, but it's, right. sure. you know, it's a lot of them. Sure. And, and uh, yeah, it just feels like suddenly you have so much more freedom and time to yeah. create content. Yeah, we always saw a big spike at Vine in traffic uh, over the summer vacation and the holiday vacation time. So that certainly tracks. The, you know, the experience of watching TikTok, everyone, everyone talks about it being such a dangerous rabbit hole to drop down. You do not open TikTok for, for two minutes, right? Right, right. They call <laughs> that the Beijing algorithm. Um, and if you watch someone else's TikTok on their phone versus yours, it's a completely different experience because they're really getting to know you quite well. Oh, wow. That's, you know, now I'm fascinated. Now I want to compare it. But it's like, I never, you know, I can spend, which apparently is a small amount of time, but I can spend 20, 30 minutes 
like in a dead time where I'm just I just want to plop down and not be thinking for a bit and just like fire up TikTok. And I never feel like at the end of it, I never get up thinking, Ugh, I just wasted like half an hour. Right, you know, because it's, there's it's like, so much joy around it. And because it's snackable, if you don't like something, then you've really only spent 15 seconds on it. And so it's not going to ruin your day. So let's get down to, obviously, a lot of the folks who listen to this are curious about influ- influencer marketing, TikTok, social platforms are very mysterious and difficult. And I think the reason they're mysterious and difficult is because they change at such a rapid clip. And you are one of the few people I know who's had to, not just in the last year, not just in the last two years, like you, this has been such a core part of your career, keeping pace with these changes. What, what do you feel are the things that more marketers should be aware of, whether it's specific right now to working with influencers in quarantine uh, and, and kind of the moment, or just general that you feel like a lot of folks in this industry and the marketing side and the agencies just don't understand about influencer marketing today? Well, something that I've always been really interested in is how few executives who need to make marketing or advertising decisions based on social and digital, what, what, small amounts of time they themselves actually spend on the platforms. Um, I'm just really curious as to why, if you're in this space at all, if you don't want to open Twitter or TikTok or Instagram, just even for five or 10 minutes a day. I think if you just put it on your calendar, 30 minutes a day, let me look at social platforms, it would give you so much more of a first person understanding of what is happening in the space. Um, I think it becomes dangerous when you rely on people who work at agencies or who work at your company to come into a room and say, this is the thing we should do. And you don't have any firsthand knowledge yourself to make those decisions. Um, You know, social platforms are inherently engineered to be easy for a user to understand. So I think this notion that social media is a difficult nut to crack really um, becomes non-existent once you actually just apply yourself a little bit. And I think one of the challenges in the social and digital world is because there's an understanding that a lot of people who work in this field don't actually have that first person knowledge of the platforms. There are a lot of people who take advantage of that. And there are a lot of people who work in this space who tell you that they're experts in social and digital, and you have no way to actually um, check that claim because you yourself can't verify it. And um, that will probably become less and less the case with every year that we continue on this path. But right now, I still see a lot of people sort of claiming to be experts in this space when um, I don't actually think that that claim is true. So, and, and I'm curious to ask you about your litmus test for marketers, because I, I was in the same boat. I worked really closely with mom bloggers for about six to eight years as part of my agency life. And it was a, it was a scene that I was very deeply involved in and, and deeply, to this day, I'm still incredibly close with many of the people I met through that. But man, talk about a group that people just, marketers just kind of sneered at, right? right? Like, oh, mommy bloggers, they just want free stuff. They just want whatever. I'm like, man, they are better content creators. They are better audience development. And, you know, they're better at everything that you think you're good at <laughs> than, than you are. And 
I don't know why it has become trendy or the cool thing to turn up your nose at a group like that or any group of people who call themselves influencers. Um, It's just too much for me to unpack. You know, my mom used to always tell me that when people make fun of me, it's because they're jealous. And I don't know if I could ever believe that. And I don't know if that's the case here. Um, Maybe it's just because the headlines, you know, the flashiest things that a lot of people see about influencers are sort of how terrible they are because bad behavior gets attention in the press. We've certainly seen a couple of popular influencers um, make the wrong decisions about themselves or their families in this time of quarantine and self-isolation, and they have now famously become the ones that the press has covered. And so I think, you know, now there's this narrative running that all influencers are handling coronavirus in an irresponsible way, and it's just not the case. Um, you know, we have, I think, for a long time in the industry, looked to creative agencies and big companies to guide social and digital strategies. And now more than ever, I think it's time to understand that influencers and digital content creators on the whole are actually the most savvy social strategists that you could ever work with because they spend their entire day on the internet studying how their audience is responding, studying how other audiences are responding, and making sure that the content that they're creating to keep their personal brand alive is going to succeed. And I think we should all really lean into them for their expertise and appreciate the vast amount of knowledge that they have instead of looking to a few bad examples to um, sort of discount the entire group of professional content creators. And I'm sure you and I would be in sync on saying that anyone who has doubts about TikTok or about the just the the talent uh, that goes into this and, and the effort, just watch it, you know, for 20 minutes. Right. And it, it won't even take you that long. And you will quickly realize that there there are 17-year-olds who are producing better comedic content than Hollywood can, can often crank out in a year and a half's time. Absolutely. And they understand the algorithm. They know how many times a day they need to post in order to succeed. They pivot on a dime. They're incredibly agile because they have... Um, just learned every single day what works and what doesn't. And um, I'm just, I never cease to be amazed at um, the body of content creators that I know personally and and watch. And I, I hope that if I'm able to accomplish anything in my career, it is causing a few people to change their minds about a negative impression that they may have around the word influencer or who those people actually are. Well, before we before we end our conversation, I did want to ask. I mean, do you feel that? In, and I realize this, you are not an unbiased judge in this <laughs> direct sense, but you've worked with a lot of brands and marketers. It feels like influencer marketing is one of the few places that is still an okay, you know, kind of a safe bet in this time where even things like out of home advertising is a question, right? Because people aren't necessarily going out of home. Like, there's so many questions about where you can put your ad dollars. Is this a good time to be going heavier on your spend for influencer marketing? I think absolutely. We've seen a 70% increase on uh, web traffic in general in this time. And I think what is so important to remember for brands is that the perceptions that you make now will have a lasting impact on society for a long time. And brands can make a difference by changing people's emotional states. And right now with almost everyone reporting that they're feeling anxiety, the whole point of marketing is to bring people an emotional 
emotional lift. And influencers are people in positions of power right now because they have a direct microphone to speak to other people who are following them. And we need human-to-human connection right now more than ever. And I think uh, an amazing way for a brand to stay connected and to feel really authentically connected with their audiences rather than pumping out um, some of these television commercials that I've seen right now that it's clear people are making a quick pivot and you see, you know, like a car driving down the street and you feel, you hear this overproduced voiceover saying, you know, we here at this big company, we're here for you. And we know that times are tough right now, but we just want you to know that we care. A commercial like that just feels so hollow. What does it actually mean? What is my takeaway from that? Um, Whereas if you, as a brand, connect with influencers right now and make sure that you're shining a spotlight on the workers in your company or um, the people on the front lines, the healthcare um, employees who are sacrificing so much right now to take care of others, if you're offering a relief from car payments, if you're donating to solutions-oriented causes, um, I think there is a way for brands to utilize the fact that influencers are content creators who work from home, who connect really directly to their audiences and give them chance to talk about how they're collaborating with this brand and they really feel like they're making a difference by changing someone's outlook on their day. Um, I think that will have a lasting impact on audiences more than um, something that feels like a value proposition without a lot behind it. Well, Karen Spencer, SVP uh, Partnerships for Whaler, thank you so much for making time for us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, David. Stay safe. Will do. All right. And that is it for this week's show. Uh, Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by CoM. If you uh, have not, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us and they help new listeners discover the show. And you can drop us a note anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week.